Hello, and welcome to Pragmatic Live, where we tackle some of the biggest challenges facing today's product management and product marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Lisa Sorg-Friedman, and today our topic is how gender and generations drive new forms of leadership. I'm joined by Dr. Tracy Weilen, a prominent thought leader on the impact of technology on society, work, and careers. Tracy has been a scholar at Stanford University and has held leadership positions at Apple, HP, Cisco, and the Apollo Group. She's also the author of 11 books, including her most recent one, Employed for Life, 21st Century Career Trends, which was released earlier this year. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on your show. Well, I'm excited to have you here today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about gender and uh, generations. Now, I, I know you live in Silicon Valley, and you've worked for some well-known technology firms like Apple, HP, and Cisco Systems. So would you start and tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, sure. Well, originally, I'm actually from New York City. My shift out to Silicon Valley was due to a family illness, and we moved out, and I basically had to start all over again because my liberal arts background and my magazine background was totally irrelevant for Silicon Valley. And so I had to really start all over again, learn about technology, learn about technology products, learn about computers and how to use them, and then be able to work my way into these types of firms that I work for. Huh. So did you go back to school in part to do that? Yes. So first I had to temp my way into the firm, uh, which is basically because I had to learn technology, I had to join a staffing firm while working in bars and restaurants and stores in the evenings and weekends to be able to be technology-oriented enough to be able to get a job. And, um, and my first role that I actually got that was a temp-to-perm role was with Apple Computer, and that was in manufacturing. And that was really the job that nobody wanted because nobody wanted to be, you know, in the manufacturing industry. Everybody wanted to be the sexy product marketing person or engineer. Um, but I did have to go back to school. I went back to school. Um, Apple had suggested to me that you can't advance in Silicon Valley because it is highly competitive without either having a business or technology degree in addition to having a bachelor's degree. So I went back for an MBA at night and weekends, and then I continued on for a doctorate and then a postdoctorate because I figured if it's that competitive, I better just keep up the education. Mm -hmm. So after you went from temp to hire, then how did you progress? What were some of the roles that you um, had in the firms? Sure. So actually, manufacturing was a very exciting job for me. You know, it was the job that nobody wanted, but it, it for me was I was put into the international division. So that's the early days of outsourcing when Apple was transferring keyboards and monitor production to overseas. Um, and so as a benefit for, for me is I traveled the world. Um, so I didn't mind, you know, working with people on manufacturing lines and engineers uh, because I was traveling all over the world. And so to me, it was actually pretty exciting. Um, once I got my advanced degree in MBA, um, I moved up, you know, basically into management roles. And that was much more broader in procurement. Um, and then I actually shifted into project management when I went to Cisco. Um, Cisco was looking at that time for people who had strong international backgrounds, combined with the education credentials, combined with you know, the, the ability to lead teams. And so that's when I moved into project management. 
you were also a professor for a number of years, and what did you teach? So I was very inspired by how education helped me as an adult and going to school at night and on weekends. So I felt I needed to contribute back. And part of my doctorate degree, I could defer some of the tuition by teaching BA and MBA students at night and on weekends. And so I taught business, international business, and then I also taught a course called Women at Work uh, because I thought it was very important because I was in such a masculine industry in a masculine field, manufacturing and technology, that I wanted to make sure that we address some some of the issues and concerns of women who worked out, out in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Now, you've received a number of honors and awards for your work with women and for women in technology. And I know you've written 11 books, most of them about women. So could you give us a little overview? Tell us more. Sure. So, you know, going back to when I was uh, working at Apple, commuting all over the world and pretty much to Asia and predominantly Japan at that time, I I needed an MBA thesis. And I approached my professor and said, you know, I am a female, a single female in a male-dominated world going to Japan, which is really a very role-oriented culture. And so I have been interviewing women informally, and I'd like to formalize that by interviewing them about how women can do business in Japan successfully. And I would like to wrap that up into my thesis and for my MBA project. And the school was very, very great. Great. They were great. They just said that that sounds like a wonderful thesis. So I did. I and I formalized it, interviewed over a hundred women who are actively doing business in Japan like I was. And I, you know, really recorded their tips for success and strategies and how they had credibility overseas. And then I met a woman who was in contact with a publisher who did only books on Japan. And she connected us, and he wanted to publish this thesis into a book, and it became Doing Business with Japanese Men. And um, to, you know, to my surprise, it became a L.A. business bestseller book. It was very exciting for me because then I you know, learned all about getting interviewed by the media, and it was a very exciting prospect for me. But really what happened from that is a lot of women came out to me and said, don't stop there. If you're traveling to Asia, could you please write a second book on how to do business successfully in other parts of Asia? So I did doing business with Japan, um, with Asian tigers, which is Singapore and Hong Kong, Taiwan. You know, what is it like to do business there? And I went back out and interviewed more women. Well, by then I was taking my doctorate degree and asking the professors because you really have to start to learn how to research when you get to a doctoral level, is could I take each class and really, you know, do the research on this continuation of a series? And of course, you know, professors are very excited about people who research and actually publish. And so I just kept progressing. So I kept doing after Asia, I went on to Europe, and then I did Mexico. And um, eventually someone said, Tracy, you're going to have to do the women in the United States. You know, you're doing the entire world where you're traveling, but at some point you'll have to do something in the U.S. And in 2013, I and my team at that time, we actually published together as a research institute, Women Lead, which is about women in leadership in the United States. And so, you know, I think there's around 
eight books over the years that have been that I have published just dedicated to women and success alone in, in business in some form or factor. Mm -hmm. Now, you have compared women in a number of cultures. What are some of the differences that you find, you know, specifically in the U.S. and versus some of the other countries? Well, you know, I think every country has its uniqueness. You know, I found even in the United States that women vary regionally. Um, and so I think it's important to know that you need to understand the environment that you're, work, that you're walking into as a businesswoman. Um, I used to frame it in Asia, particularly in Japan, because it, it was um, so role-oriented at that time that I was like a third gender because they had never seen a businesswoman come over from the United States doing business with them. And they knew that I was different than the local women who were really not working. They were either secretaries or tea servers and basically full-time moms. Um, and I wasn't like a man because obviously it was a female and wore dresses and suits and, you know, and had long hair. And so I just, you know, I find that I had to educate different countries on this new phenomena that they were experiencing, which is the American businesswoman and how we're different. Um, now, over time, obviously, there's many more women in the, in the workforce. There's many more women traveling overseas. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the generations have shifted overseas as well. Um, and so this is becoming less important, but still something that, you know, had its place in time. Interesting. And what about your latest book, Employed for Life? Would you tell us about some of your findings from that? So Employed for Life is really all about careers and workforce in today's modern era. So it's really a 360-degree look at through different lenses from the HR, you know, in, in a company. What's the new expectation of, of an employee from the hiring manager? What's different about finding talent today and what are you looking for? From the employee who's gotten a job, what's, what's different about how you found a job, what you need to present yourself as, as you know, compared to the past? So it's really just a 360-degree look at job hunting, career development, and modern-day workforce through the, through the eyes of different groups and organizations. Mm -hmm. So what have you found about job hunting? I mean, things have changed. Everything seems to be online, and um, that can make it really challenging. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's the good news. You know, and the good news is, is that you have much more transparency and visibility to jobs that are available and out there. The bad news is, is that there's so many job boards and so many people applying to these jobs that it's sort of like a black hole. And I think that's a frustration that a lot of people have about the online job boards. Recruiters will tell you that 65 or to 75% of jobs today are still secured through knowing someone, mm -hmm. then the network. So usually it's a friend who, who introduces someone to somebody else who's looking for a person. Because at the end of the day, people hire people. And so if you come in with a reference or a connection, that person has a lot at stake, right, mm -hmm. because they're representing you. And it also helps the managers sort of filter through all of these unknowns coming in from job boards. So I think that, you know, we look at the job boards and say, that's great because now I can see everyone who's hiring and get in there and, and apply. 
but at the same time, it's usually the someone who knows someone will get in, you know, get the job before you. On the other hand, I think what's important to know about finding jobs today is that when you do look at these job boards, you have to match the criteria precisely because that's why they, they add the criteria. And I think a lot of people do what we call spray and pray. They send resumes to everything and say, I'm just a good person, they should hire me. And that, to me, is very old days. Mm -hmm. You know, in the old days, if you were a good person, people would hire you and then train you. In the modern day, people are looking for very specific skills, experience, and backgrounds, and they put that in the job description. And so I encourage employees or people who are applying for jobs, if you don't meet 90% of the criteria in the job description, let it go. And I think a lot of people are very tempted to apply to everything and, and hope. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the best practices that came out of the, the um, interviews that I did for that research and that book. Really? So 90%? Because I know sometimes I've, I've read things where they, they talk about men will apply for jobs when they have, I don't, you know, just over 50% and women are more, have more of a tendency not to apply unless they're closer to 100%. Online. Right. Yeah, so I'm okay. talking about criteria online. So okay. I don't know if you're male or female. I know in in the work environment, if I know you and um, an employee wants more responsibility, I, I understand the research suggests that men will be more likely to volunteer to be promoted when they only have half the capabilities and women will hold back when they have 90% of the capabilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, but that's a good point. Online versus live. Now, when it comes to career development, I know you've done a lot of work, you know, we're talking about women, but also um, different generations. And are you finding any differences with career development among the way women address it and, and then perhaps younger generations? Well, let me let me just start off. So in this body of work I did for, for Women Lead, we, I actually, uh, we did extensive surveys of both men and women uh, in different manage management and leadership roles across the United States in different kinds of firms and organizations. And they really were segmented into three generations. The millennials, often known as Generation Y, uh, Gen X, and the baby boomers, because that was the predominantly what was in the workforce that we were, that we were um, evaluating. We also did what you call qualitative interviews, where I, where I interviewed, actually, and led that team of interviewing over 200 women who were leaders on um, their views of leadership, and then you kind of cross the data. Mm -hmm. So what we found on the, the generation-wise is that, first off, you know, women across the board in all generations ranked women highest on all modern-day leadership skills, attributes, and characteristics. So that suggested that women are ready for women as leaders. And the characteristics are common day ones that you measure, you know, whether it's problem solving, critical skills, strategy, vision, big picture thinking. What we found is that men did not rank men highest on all of the leadership skills, attributes, and characteristics, which meant that we had an issue, you know, we had to like dive, really dive deeper and say, why, what men? you know, what, uh, what's the differences? So we decided to cut the data in a different way by the three generations and start to look at are there differences between men 
in these generations and view of, you know, women in leadership. And that's what we found. We found that our millennial men or Generation Y and Gen X were pretty much gender agnostic. That is, a good leader is a good leader. And so they didn't really skew in any direction because it came up pretty, you know, equally. But we did find that the baby boomer men had, was the skew, that they really had suggested that they felt that men were more qualified for leadership than women. When you sit back and you look at that, you say, well, these men grew up with the leave it to beaver world. They didn't grow all necessarily grow up with women in the workforce or mothers in the workforce or mothers as managers. And many of them only saw the male figure. And so that's where they may be predisposed that way. I think the more interesting result was the younger men. So that's sort of like the 50 and under group who didn't see any gender differences. And that made a lot of sense to us as well, because a lot of young people today grow up with single parents or dual working parents, you know, or uh, the breadwinner maybe may be the female and not the male. And so this gener these generations are not seeing the world through a lens of gender anymore. They're seeing it in a completely different way. So I think that was a major finding that we had. And had we not cut the data by generation, we probably wouldn't have found that. Mm -hmm. Boy, I see that as a really positive and hopeful development. Wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, exactly. So a lot of women said, well, whew, you know, we'll know that the men will cycle out of the workforce and then we'll have the younger generation and the gender issues will go away. And HR people will tell you, yes, but. And this is where company culture becomes very important. If you are still replicating and enforcing the hierarchical masculine cultures of the past, then you are almost morphing people who are gender agnostic into right roles that they may have to learn, right? So, so it's basically, and I say HR executives are very sensitive to that because some companies have very strong cultures. So the only way to excel or move ahead is if you sort of conform to those cultures. So I think it's a catch-22 there, that you also have to realize that the culture has to evolve as the roles evolve and the gender viewpoints evolve. Wow, that's a good point. That That's fascinating. Yeah. So there's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, there are, there are and, and I think that's the point, is that a lot of women, you know, like myself, have worked in Silicon Valley um, and there are very strong cultures and very masculine cultures of firms in Silicon Valley. So even though the generation coming in doesn't understand that, that may be the mode of survival that they will need to adopt mm -hmm. because they really want to move ahead. So let me ask you, um, do you have any specific findings about women who work in technical fields? Well, well, number one, there isn't enough of them, and that, that is hopefully changing. And I think that's really changing through parents, through school systems now, really encouraging young, young girls to get their hands dirty and touch technology and make them feel good about it. And I'm going to add technology and finance, because I think those are two fields that, that seem to be pushed towards young boys and not as much towards young women. And that has changed. I meet many more young 
girls today who are excited about technology. They're in technology classes. They're um, at technology camps, right? So I think that whole shift, when we will see that pipeline, um, you know, mature over time and see more women in that area. The second area I see is very promising are entrepreneurs. And, you know, you can call it the Shark Tank effect, but you see a lot more young women today who are financially astute starting firms. And that's where I think you will get the biggest shift in, in change in culture because if women are starting firms, they're going to design the firm to really be more they're, they're great leaders, as we, we found in our study, so they will embrace uh, a more diverse population and probably not, you know, replicate the hierarchical systems of the past and probably re really reinvent culture in a new, in a unique way that really embraces everyone. So I'm, I'm excited about women in technology, but I think we have our pipeline that will be coming, both in the corporate world, but also in the entrepreneurial world. Well, that's exciting news. And you've kind of touched on this, but are, are there any, have you noticed any specifically unique challenges for women who work in technical fields right now? I know you've talked a bit about the pipeline and, um, you know, that, that girls need to become more focused on technology and finance. Um, but what, what about present day? Yeah, so I think it's... Um you know, one thing I, that I encourage women to do, because I find that women are less likely to do it, although this is shifting as well, is to really evaluate the companies that you're going to work for and the management teams there and make a decision, you know, are, do you want to work in that culture or not? Or is it a stop for you? Right? So many times, you know, we approach a company and say, oh, I'm going to be there forever. And then we get sucked into and we can't seem to make lateral moves or vertical moves. And we're sort of, you know, sort of stuck. Well, that might be the time for you to say this was a stop and it's time for me to move on and find, you know, what kind of skills experience can I gather here and then take to the next firm. And I think that's a strategy that I have used because each firm has progressively led me to bigger promotions mm -hmm. than I have gotten internally. So I think a lot of times women have to think about your biggest move may be leaving the firm and your biggest adventure might be leaving the firm as well. But you will become, you could be, you know, really, really be much more strategic if you start to think in terms of that rather than I'm going to stay in one firm forever. Right. Yeah, that's good advice. Now, we, we had talked a little bit about the role that generations play in the workforce, and I know we, we discussed um, the findings of millennials and Generation Y men that they're more willing to accept uh, female leaders. Were there any surprises in your research? Sure. So, uh, you know, another thing that came up is we actually looked at the generations in terms of expectations around leadership. And when we asked Generation X and, and the, the boomers, well, we asked all three generations, at what point do you expect to be a leader? And our Gen X and our boomers said, probably in my 40s. But our millennials across the board said, in my 20s. So the expectation of the millennial generation Y 
is that they want to be leaders and don't even see any reason why they can't be leaders in their 20s. And I think you have to really look at that seriously because they're looking at their role models out by me in Silicon Valley is, you know, Marissa Meyer and Mark Zuckerberg. These are mm -hmm. young people leading companies. So in their mind, it's completely feasible to be in your 20s and be in an executive position. I think the bigger surprise was is that when we looked at confidence between the millennials, our women millennials were much more confident than our male millennials, which was interesting because what we're looking at is this young generation of women are highly confident and highly capable. And so now it's a matter of them, you know, what will they bring, what will they bring to the workforce and how will they change it? Um, that, that's really interesting. That is a surprise to me too. What are some of the other findings that you found about generation and gender at factoring into the leadership style? Sure. So, you know, in terms of multi-generations in the workforce, I think this is top of mind for a lot of managers and leaders, as well as HR executives, because they have this challenge now of having three generations in the workforce, some have four generations in the workforce, some have five generations in the workforce. And McDonald's was telling me they have uh, their youngest employees, 14 and a half, who is on a part-time permit. And Walmart was explaining to me their oldest employee is 103. And so, you know, this whole idea of having five generations in the workforce adds a lot of complexity that people didn't have in the past, right? Because every generation has a different idea about work. Every generation has a different idea about leadership. But more importantly, every generation has a different idea or interest in use of technology. And I think that's where it gets very challenging for managers, whether you're a young manager managing someone older than yourself, or if you're an older manager, right, trying to manage teams of people who might be half your age. Um, so I think that's a lot of complexities that people are trying to work through um, and, and be able to still have very productive workforces. So I think that in itself is, is an interesting area. In terms of women in leadership, I think one of the things that we found is that women are excellent leaders um, and highly confident and also great negotiators. In fact, we had a segment of our study that looked at women in negotiating. And what we found is that women overwhelmingly felt that women were excellent business negotiators. However, the one thing that came up quite often was that women were, although expert in business negotiations, we're not confident about their own personal negotiations. That's that that is when it comes to salary and promotion. And so I, you know, I feel that, you know, this is an area of opportunity. If you are a female and uncomfortable with sitting down and talking about your salary and promotion, this is an opportunity to really view it as a celebration of yourself. Right. Because, you know, you're living much longer. You need to be a revenue stream and you need to fund yourself and your family. So it's very important that you have an ongoing dialogue about your success so that you are paid so that you can have all of these wonderful things for yourself and your family. Yeah. Well, how do you do that? You know, especially if it's something that you you haven't grown up with, because it seems like boys, you know, that's kind of internalized. It's, you know, from day one, it seems, and not, not always with girls. Right. So actually, that was one of our questions when I went back to women, is what, what is it about the word negotiation? And what, what, what comes to your mind? And they view it as being very masculine, very hostile, 
and unfeminine, you know, so a lot of people have grown up with that, you know, they view it as haggling for a car, and then they send the husband in to do the haggling. So here's what I encourage women to do. Number one is you can't sit down and have any kind of meaningful discussion about salary promotion if you don't know your worth. And fortunately today, thanks to the internet, you can find out a lot more about what you are worth. In fact, Glassdoor.com even has opened up a new site called What You're Worth because they know that that's critical to have those kinds of meaningful discussions. So you can go out to these sites, Payscale.com, Glassdoor.com, go to recruiters, go to professional association salary surveys, and down to the zip code today, experience and skills, you should know exactly what you're worth, right? So how you compare to other people in your field. Number two is, have an, it's a dialogue. It is not this once a year negotiation where your manager has the money and you're trying to figure out how to get it. It's really should be, and you initiate this, a constant flow of information and dialogue with your manager on what you're doing, right? And making sure that you're keeping in line with promotable behaviors, right? What is it that they're looking for that, and how do they promote it? Number three is I've always told my staff to keep metrics on yourself. So if you are working for a firm that only has a review every six months or once a year, and that includes a salary review, help your manager out. Keep one metric on yourself every day on how you increase profitability, decrease costs, enhance customer service or brought in new clients. Those are tangible, they have quantitative value. And then you can, at the end of the year, you'll have 360 plus metrics on yourself, which a manager would just love to staple to their request for promotion or salary increase because you've quantified it for them. So I think people need to be much more proactive about their promotion and their salaries People need to view themselves as a revenue stream, that you're a product, and product marketing people know this very well, you're a product, and you have to make money, and you have to keep funding yourself because you'll be working for a very long time. And so salary and promotion discussions are just a natural course of making sure that that product survives and brings in cash, and make sure that it is a dialogue. It should not be a hostile, um, antagonistic, encounter but rather a continued dialogue about your success mm -hmm. that's great information I, I'm stealing that for myself <laughs> absolutely now I, I have one little question um, when you were talking about looking on um, glassdoor.com and payscale.com and things to help you know your worth and you mentioned that you can drill down via zip code I know that a lot of our listeners work for international companies or companies that have um, a, a, what, a, a business in different cities. And, yeah. you know, they're represented. And so I once worked for a company where they were trying to figure out, I mean, I they were trying to figure out how to pay everybody because we were, we were scattered. We were a virtual team. And, um, and it got kind of challenging because people who lived in North Carolina were being defined by a different metric versus those of us who lived in Phoenix versus those who were in San Jose. And it got a little bit confusing because some people would be doing the same work, same title, but for a different salary. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's really HR. They, it's, it's all about the cost of living, right? So you value 
the skills, right, the same, but the worth of the skills versus the cost of the living has to change, right? So buying a house in Silicon Valley is over a million dollars, and a lot of you know, it's over two million dollars. It's impossible to buy a house in Silicon Valley. For a million dollars or two million dollars, you can get a really nice estate in Phoenix. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I think you know. So I think you'll find that in HR departments now, they have a lot of analytics and metrics around how to how to pay people fairly, but also in in relation to where they live. I mean, I was just literally in the Midwest this last week, and I was shocked at how inexpensive food was. In California, it's impossible to get a meal for under $20. It's impossible to get a lunch for under $10. But in the Midwest, you could have, you know, dinner for three for $20. You know, I mean, it's, there's substantial differences in the cost of living. And I think that's a big factor in how people have different salaries. So to be more accurate, and that's why I say you can get down to the zip code, mm -hmm. is a lot of these sites are really putting in those analytics so that they understand that a, a market, a product marketing manager in North Carolina versus Phoenix versus San Jose is probably not going to get paid the same based on zip code and where they live, tax systems, and how much it just costs to live there. Mm -hmm. Good point. Well, this has been really fascinating. Do you have any key takeaways for our audience? Well, I think that the major takeaway that I try to impress upon people is that we are living in a world where people are living much longer. I used to say to 100 until a few weeks ago, I read some research that said people our age today may live to 115 and a baby born today may live to 150. So that should really change the way that you look at yourself and your career, personal career planning. You will likely outlive the company that you're working for. So you need to really have a different plan for yourself and your career will have many careers because you probably will be working some of us 70 years, some of us 80 years, some of us 90 years. And so you need to start to make some plans of if I'm joining a firm for 10 years, what do I want to get out of that experience? If I'm transitioned out of a firm and I may be in five years, what do I want to be able to reflect that I've done there so I can carry it to the next job? So I think that we have to be much more proactive about managing our careers. And I call it, and wrote a blog about it, is it time for a career selfie? Which is really taking a focus and a look at your own personal career planning because it's really important. Because you really have to fund yourself like a product until you're living past 100. Hmm. That's, that's great information. Um, thank you, Tracy, so much for joining us today. I, it's been fascinating. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, well, thank you, Lisa, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pragmatic Live. To learn more about how gender and generations drive new forms of leadership, check out Tracy Weiland's website, tracywyland.com. That's T-R-A-C-E-Y-W-I-L-E-N.com. And be sure to check out our website, pragmaticmarketing.com, where you can find out when our training will be coming to a city near you.